Have you ever watched the TV show Community and wondered what Abed was talking about when he discussed films or what films the show was spoofing with different outfits or references they made? If you answered yes, this is a podcast for you. Welcome to Cool Abed Films Chat, a podcast dedicated to discussing the many film references made in the TV show community. My co-host, special guest, and I will break down a film reference from the show, and we'll discuss the plot, the time period when the films were released, favorite quotes, and interesting trivia. Thank you so much for listening, and welcome to our next episode. This guy is methodical, exacting, and worst of all, patient. He's a nutbag. Wanting people to listen, you can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore. You have to hit them with a sledgehammer. And then you'll notice you've got their strict attention. Hold on. That's not even my death. You're no messiah. You're a, you're a movie of the week. You're a in t-shirt at best. It's easier to lose yourself. Drugs that it is to call them It's easier to steal what you want than it is to turn it. It's easier to beat a child than it is to raise it. Love costs. It takes effort and work. What do you got? Dead dog. I didn't do that. I seem to remember us knocking on your door. What's in the box? So uh, today I am very pleased to have two very special guests with me. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Yeah, I'm Jillian Clayton Smallwood. And I'm Michael Smallwood. Uh, and we're the hosts of the of Welcome to Greendale, which is one of the community podcasts. Yeah. Whoop, 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 whoop. <laughs> and your so your podcast, so you have somebody a new viewer, right, who's never seen the show before. Correct. Yes. Sadia Matthews is our third. Um, she has never seen the show before. She's watching spoiler free episode by episode with us. So we're getting to relive kind of those first reactions um, with her. Uh, it's and of course she has different takes than we do and it, it wasn't a show that she knew she would even like whenever we were like hey there's this quirky show that we want to get somebody who has never watched before to do a podcast with us about um so unfortunately because of that she can't do a whole lot of oh no she's not allowed to do any press she's not allowed uh, to do any of the sort of stuff with yeah, us you, you can't google or also she probably like you know don't google things like just um yeah she's, she's not allowed yeah I've heard. Yeah, she's, um, she's not allowed to Google. She, um, she, she, we only just now cleared her having a Twitter. Like, it's, it's, <laughs> nice. Yeah. She, she can't join us for like community. Like, you know, we, we, we do crossover things with the other podcasts and stuff like that. And she's not allowed to come because we're gonna inevitably discuss <laughs> yes. things. That she, no. Uh, yeah. Because so. I've been part of one of those, and we did. We got into like major spoilers, even like the last episode. So. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. I've actually, yeah. I've had the pleasure of actually listening to podcasts very similar to that, where they had a newbie. And they were very adamant, like, I don't want to know any spoilers whatsoever. So, like, it was very strict, like, you know, if you spoil anything, like, 
they're going to be very angry with you. But it's always, I think, a very interesting and cool concept because then you get to see somebody else's reaction for the first time. And you can judge mm -hmm. them or you can be like, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's exactly how I feel. <laughs> well, it's also our show then because we have someone on the show who is getting community's experience for the first time and not like someone who is watching it for the first time but is binge watching the show as many right. people do now. Like, we could, like, Sidia watches an episode of Community a week. We watch an episode of Community a week now. And so it is the experience of watching an episode, having to process it, and then having to wait for the next one. Um, which is an experience that even, even most newcomers to the show don't get now because it's on Netflix, it's on Hulu. Like, you can binge watch the episodes. Right. And, and most people do when they're rediscovering it, or even if they were catching up to watch later seasons, Sadia doesn't have that. Sadia has the purest example of watching Community for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's, it probably just would be like reminiscent or like similar to somebody who actually watched the show live from the first episode and had to wait like week to week. Yeah, like, you yeah, know, as their yeah. origin story. So actually speaking of origin stories, um, how did both of you get into Community in the first place? Um, well, I uh, started watching Community during season one, um, like right at the tail end of season one. I had had people tell me about the show, um, and it was I think it was right after Modern Warfare aired that I first started. I first watched an episode, and then watched week by week, um, season by season, every episode after, uh, and was a super huge fan. And then was and then Jillian joined right after that i kind of joke that i started watching through osmosis yeah basically um okay. i couldn't tell you the exact point that i started watching um because i would be in the room with him while he was watching and at first i wasn't really paying attention i was reading or doing something else and eventually i stopped reading and was watching the show um so it was very shortly after he started watching but but I don't have an exact pinpoint because it was more so I was in the room and I could not deny community's charm and power to be able to do anything else. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think mean, it's one of those shows too, where like real quickly for my story is um, I happened to be in college when it started airing and I was actually sitting like, I remember this like vividly, I was sitting on my apartment floor in my apartment and I just randomly turned the TV on. I didn't know what was playing, but it was, you know, the very beginning of like, you know, pilot season here in September <laughs> And it happened to come on. And so I was like, okay, like, this is a new show, apparently. And I gave it a try. And I, even after the first episode, I'm like, I think I like this show. And so I watched <laughs> it like every week. And I literally watched every single episode week to week all the way through uh, the end of uh, like even through Yahoo screen. Like I, I purchased Same. it, like I did everything. And so, yeah, like, my story is a little bit different than some people because a lot of people get it right from, you know, like you're watching it on Netflix or they found it on Hulu when it came to streaming. But I really enjoy the fact that I was able to randomly come across a show that I ended up absolutely loving. And it's one of my favorite shows of all time now. So I think it's really mm -hmm. cool. That's awesome. You always feel a bit of a sense of pride whenever you're like, I was an early adopter. Oh, yeah. I was <laughs> well, one of the like, people who were like, yeah, I mean, I, mean, yeah. I know um, I talked to I've talked to other people who said like, oh, no, like I like had heard about it. And like, you know, you hear about it in May because of the upfronts. And it's like you, you people who re were reading like the trade weeklies and stuff. And like, and I was like always planning to watch it. And I was like, that's even way more advanced than me. Like, I was just, <laughs> like, turn the TV on. Oh, this looks really cool. Okay, I'll watch it. And also, like, I actually had gone to community college. So I was like, uh, you know what? Like, this might be a show for me. And I found a lot of things relevant 
to my experience at community college, like there were people like the study group at my college. So Mm -hmm. like, it was very, for me, it was just like, okay, like I actually relate to a lot of what's going on here. And then obviously everything is like way overblown and way over the top, but I found it amazing and hilarious. And, uh, almost instantly, like as soon as Abbott started talking about his love of film, I was like, okay, right there is where my connection is because I am very much into movies. I have always enjoyed watching movies more, even more than television. And so that's actually how we, uh, me and Minotaur Man actually met and how we got involved in this uh, podcast. And so, yeah. And so you guys are on today because we're going to be starting a little bit of our, not really Halloween episodes, but more of our like psychological thrillers and more of like, you know, the spooky movies. And so we're actually going to talk today about the movie seven, which is, (laughs) and this is probably one of my favorite psychological thrillers of all time. I, that's like, I don't like horror, but I love psychological thrillers because like, for me, it's like cerebral. Like I love trying to figure out if you know who the killer is, like if they're shown, can you figure out who it is? And I love doing it before other people. Cause I'm like, yeah, like my brain is so powerful, you know? Um, <laughs> so today we're talking about seven, which is actually um, a lot of times it's stylized where you have a seven in the middle. So it's like mm-hmm. a sideways, like B almost. Um, and so this movie is actually a 1995 American neo-noir psychological uh, crime thriller film. And it was directed by David Fincher. And written by Andrew Kevin Walker. It stars Brad Pitt, Morgan Freeman, Gwyneth Paltrow, um, Kevin Spacey, Arlie Ernie, and John C. McGinley. Which I was very surprised to see him show up because I forgot he was in this movie. Like you do sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, well, the thing that got me is because I had been doing, I've been doing recently um, like a rewatch of Scrubs, which is another one. I love Scrubs just as much as I love Community. And like for a lot of people, like it's either community or scrubs. And for me, it's both because I just, I like the single cam, like sitcom. I like it more than like having a laugh track. Like I just, for me, it's just easier to digest. And I heard his voice and I was like, that's Dr. Cox, but he looks very different because he's bald in like the movie and stuff. But I was just like, whoa, like John C. McGinley's in this movie. But so um, (laughs) seven was released on September 22nd, 1995. In 2,441 theaters, it grossed $13.9 million on its opening weekend, and it went on to gross $100.1 million in North America and 227 in the rest of the world for a total of $327.3 million. So it was a uh, box office success. It became the seventh high grossing, highest grossing film in 1995, and it spent four consecutive weeks in the top spot at the United States box office in 1995. Uh, the film was well received by critics and um as of like this year it holds an approval rating of 82 percent on rotten tomatoes and too low (laughs) i I agree i think it should be higher than that too low and um but it has an average rating of 7.7 out of 10. Um, too low what are we doing (laughs) (laughs) um but the site's critics consensus reads a brutal relentlessly grimy shocker with top performances slick gore effects and a haunting finale which i would agree with um, mm-hmm. and so David Fincher, though, he has actually done a lot of very well-received and well-known films. Uh, his first major film that he directed was Alien 3. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. We just watched that for the first time, like, last month. Oh, Alien 3? Okay. Yeah. So okay. We, it's so bad, So y'all. something I've been doing during the quarantine is, like, movie Mondays. So on my Instagram stories, I watch and react to 
movies. And um, for a few weeks, we did all of the Alien films. Okay, yes. And um, Alien 3 obviously comes up when you're doing the Alien film. It was the first time I'd ever sat and watched Alien 3. I'd read a lot about it, and I knew a great deal about its behind-the-scenes um, kerfuffle. I'm going to go with that word uh, yes. to describe the production of Alien 3. But I had never actually watched the movie. Um, not the worst Alien movie. I mean, no, not the worst. Not no. by a but long for shot. David to have gone from Alien 3... He shouldn't have a career. David Fincher this. shouldn't have a career because he started with Alien 3 and then moved right on to 7. Well, we actually... So I no way we should know his that. name. I, I, looked at, I, I actually looked this up because I'm like, how in the heck did he go from Alien 3 to this? So <laughs> I looked it up and he said that what happened behind the scenes in Alien 3 made him never want to make a movie again. Like, he was done right. with film. And he actually had come from, like, music videos. Like, that's what he, yes. like, had done before. And so he, he said, like, um, he was... Famously, um, he did a Michael Jackson music yes. video. Um, well, yeah. he, but he, told, he basically, in an interview, said, I was ready to just go back and do that. But then <laughs> this script came... Uh, he came across the script. And this actually was written by a guy working at a Tower Records store. He was, like, really depressed with his life. And he's, like he wrote this as he was working and he was a nobody. And so he just kept trying to sell it to like different agents. And finally one agent's like, okay, like I think I can maybe get this to some people and we can see about getting this like filmed. And so it came across the desk of David Fincher and he read it and loved it. And he was like, I, he's like, I think I can do something with this. And so eventually they did get it made, but they did tell the, the writer that like he needed to seek psychological help. After he <laughs> I just don't, I don't see how, it, you know, it's funny about that is that like you, you take, you take, you throw David Fincher, who's hot from all of the, all, you know, he, he's, he's this hot music video director. And so you, you basically throw him into Alien 3 after every other director leaves right. or passes because of the mess. And then, yeah. um, and he's cheap. Like you can get him cheap, mm -hmm. throw this yep. kid at it. He needs a gig. So then you throw him at Alien 3 with a script that had at that point gone through, I think we counted six writers when we Something went through like and that. did all the research. Yeah. Um, and then he makes Alien 3, which is a bit of a mess of a movie, and then a massive bomb. Okay, so then he, the next movie he decides to make, he asks to make this movie, which mm -hmm. I, one, I don't believe, I can't believe the studios said yes <laughs> to letting him make this movie. Um, I can't believe they let David Fincher make this movie off of just Alien 3. And I can't believe after seeing the movie that studios went, yeah, 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 keep making movies. <laughs> well, I think one of the interesting things, though, like, so I actually pulled the list from Wikipedia of the films that he's directed since then. So after mm -hmm. that, he went on in 1987, he did The Game, which mm -hmm. was uh, with Michael Douglas, which is another psychological thriller, that, and Sean Penn, I believe, right? Um, yeah, so full disclosure, David Fincher is one of Julian and I's favorite directors. Yeah, I, like, I remember up, loving... We are huge loving, fans of like, his work. Yeah, uh, I just remember loving... I actually liked the game. Like, I thought that was a good movie, too. And then he went on to probably, like, outside of Seven, Fight Club for me is one of his best, like, works, because I loved... Because I read the book, so I loved the film adaptation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, he went on to do Fight Club. Then he did... Not like it wasn't super like popular, but I watched Panic Room in the theaters and I did like it. I enjoyed it. I thought Jodie Foster did a great job in that movie. Mm -hmm. Then he went on to do Zodiac, which is another amazing film yes. with uh, Mark Ruffalo. Uh, then he did The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which again I enjoyed that movie. Like I, yep. I thought it was great. Then The Social Network, which is undoubtedly one of like I mean it's probably one of the highest rated movies still. Like in I think it's on, a masterpiece. I, like IMDb, like it has it above ninety percent. 
Uh, yeah, then it's, a cult- the, it's a yeah. cultural masterpiece. Yeah. Then he did The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which again, uh, Dan McCraig, Rooney Mara. I enjoyed that yeah. film again. That's that's our favorite. That's one of our, yeah. that's actually, that's my favorite David Finney. I saw David that David in David the David. theater too. I love that. And then he did Gone Girl, we, which is another we, amazing movie. We read the we read the girl with the dragon tattoo books before seeing okay, either yes, of the sets okay. of movies. Yep. And I I I I I don't dislike uh, I don't dislike what the Swedish version did, but I I think David Fincher found the book mm-hmm. like right, in a way exactly, that the, yeah. the Swedish film did not. He found how the if he found how it felt reading the book in a way that the Swedish film didn't, um, and just gave me a perfect Lisbeth Salander. Mm-hmm. Like perfect. I, I just, as I was reading through this list, like I've seen all of these movies, and I think I saw every single one of these movies in the theater when they came out. But mm-hmm. I was like, I didn't realize that he directed all of these movies, and I'm like, okay, like he directed a lot of movies that I lo- like. Like, there's not oh, outside, yeah. of, outside of Alien Three, there's not one movie I did <laughs> not like. Yeah, and even yeah. watching yeah. Alien Three, I yeah. could see the pieces in it where I was like, oh, David, you tried. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like watching Alien Three, I was like, "Oh, I can see David Fincher in here." Sure, I can yes. also. Just, I can also tell that, like, oh, they they stuck you with this movie, didn't they? <laughs> um, but I'm like you said, like, how did he have a career? But I'm so glad he did because I can't oh, imagine absolutely. any yeah. director doing Seven. Honestly, like, oh, this yeah. movie to me is probably one of yeah, and it's to me it's one of the best psychological thrillers ever made. It is a, I think it's a masterpiece as well. Like this film is. I, you know, I noticed last, there, there are things about Seven that I do find a, um, a little, a little rough. There are rough patches of Seven, mostly because I'm like, oh, this is David, like, this is David Fincher's first movie. Like, Alien 3 is a feature film that David Fincher directed, but it's also, it's David Fincher coming in and just overseeing, we have to finish this mess. Um, whereas like Seven's his movie. And so you can see the beginnings of- His what, fingerprints. Yeah, you can see the beginnings yes. of what will become his style. And, and you know, is it perfect? I don't think Seven's perfect. I think that there are, wh- one of the th- issues that I brought up last, uh, not last night, the other night when we were rewatching for this uh, conversation is that, man, Brad Pitt's character requires Brad Pitt to take wild swings in his performance as uh, Mills, and they do not always connect. There are scenes and line readings where I was like, oh no, oh no, you needed another take. (laughs) Why did they print this? This is not the take that you print. I was gonna also agree with that because I watched this movie and I did not realize in Brad Pitt's career that he actually, like, he had to leave early from filming this to go on and do 12 Monkeys. I don't know Mm -hmm. if if you've ever seen that film. But yeah. Brad yeah. Pitt in 12 Monkeys mm-hmm. is, to me, is his best role that he's ever done. Like, he plays, he's psychotic in 12 Monkeys. He and is. it's he's amazing, psychotic. like, to watch, like, the fact that he went from, like, this kind of, like, hit or miss in Seven to this amazing performance in uh, 12 Monkeys. I was like, well, clearly Seven was just a warm-up for him to be able to do what he did in 12 Monkeys. Like, you know, he was practicing. <laughs> <laughs> I also think that before this, I haven't looked at Brad Pitt's IMDb for a while, but I think that this might be one of the first roles he got to be more than just the handsome, yes. Yes. romantic, yeah. heartthrob kind of dude. Yeah, it was in 95. Um, I mean, it was 95. Yeah. So early 90s were very predominant with like Brad Pitt is our swoon worthy character. So, um, so it was around, so him having some misses. Well, sure, because he wasn't used to it, right? Like he right. wasn't yep. used to having to take. I also things. wonder how many of the. I would love to. I would love to know what the shooting schedule was because there are, you know, um, 
he injured himself on set making this movie. So like yeah, the so the, there is some trivia. When we get to that scene, I'm going to talk about what he did and how it actually had yeah. to get read into the film. But we, yeah. what you were talking about with Brad Pitt, there's also some other trivia that he actually gave an interview where he said that the movie that he had done right before um, Seven was Legend of the Falls. And he's like, it was the cheesiest, corniest piece of crap he ever made. He had to have his shirt off constantly or his shirt was constantly wet and like sticking to his mm -hmm. skin. And so he went on to this film set and he told David Fincher, I refuse to take my shirt off. I will not be a sex symbol in this movie. And David Fincher's like, fine, because that's not what this movie's about. So, yeah. uh, And in yeah. fact, the way they have him costumed is all of his clothes are messy and over, like, big. They do not fit. Mm -hmm. yep. They're always yep. wrinkled. Yep. They're, the cuffs are, like, almost never buttoned correctly or anything. Yes. Like, he, is, he looks very sloppy, especially whenever we do the juxtaposition to Somerset, Morgan Freeman's character, who yep. Whenever they do those shots, I mean, the amount of night and day that they projected in this film between those two characters. I chalk those that, those clothing decisions up to two things. One, in character, he just moved to the town and like this case is getting to him. And two, yeah. out of character, it was the 90s and everyone's clothes were huge. <laughs> yeah. So the yeah, whole time, I mean, like, do, you the, do you remember the Jacob clothes everybody wore? God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, this shirt doesn't fit, but it's I 95. So yeah, I mean, that's the shirt he's in. I just it's like, when I was like, I graduated high school in 2000. So I had a pair of Jankos for, for real, like mm -hmm. in the late 90s. So yeah, but I yeah. totally understand it. But one of the things too, that there is more trivia, which I didn't really add, but we can bring it up now is that uh, Brad Pitt uh, bought all of his own ties because he had it in his mind that his character had horrible fashion sense. So he wanted to look as bad as possible. And so and he does. David Fincher agreed with him. He's like, that's perfect. He's like, do that. And so he actually went out and bought all of the ties that he wears with every outfit. And he picked each one each day what he was going to wear for the seven days that this movie was supposed to take place over, which I thought was I very it. interesting. Yeah. So like those tiny little attention to details is like really interesting. One of the reasons, and I, stop me if I'm jumping over stuff, but one of the reasons that this movie works so well, I think, um, even more so than its script, is I think that like it's 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 a it's 1995. Some of these people are at the very heights of their career, um, or coming off the heights of their career. Not David Fincher, obviously, but like. Um, I don't actually think any of them. They're all. They're all. I mean, Morgan, Morgan Freeman. Freeman. Morgan Freeman is hot. I mean, yes, it, he's Morgan, Morgan Freeman in the but mid '90s. When Paltrow and, and Brad Pitt are, are at the start, the they're star. cresting. Yeah, they're cresting. They're, they're starting. They're young starlets cresting a career. Kevin Spacey is also super hot mm -hmm. right now too, right? Yeah. So, yep. So, but you look at these actors who a hundred percent walked onto set with an unproven director and a script that under no circumstances are mid nineties audiences primed for. And every single one of them goes, yeah, we're committing a hundred percent to this movie. Right. Like, yeah. you know, to the point where like Kevin Spacey, who appears in the movie about an hour and 20 minutes in yes. is not credited at the top, despite the fact that like, he, and it, because he told the studio, Hey, listen, um, yeah, if I want to play this, I'm playing this part. Do not put me in the credits. I'm not doing any press because he, right. because you know Kevin Spacey's in the movie, then you're waiting for Kevin Spacey because yeah, he's right. the biggest star in this movie. But well, like, he also he had said that that like his main idea for that was literally because he didn't want to do press. So he came up with the <laughs> idea where he was just like, "Hey, like it's probably not a great idea to spoil who I am in the movie." And then mm -hmm. he said that he told them it was for like the movie's sake. And then later in in an interview afterwards, said, "I just didn't want to do press for like six months, like everybody else had to." And we're like, oh, okay. So like, even then, he was already gaming the system a little bit, where he was like, 
there's but man, ulterior motives here. <laughs> even in gaming the system, though, it's genius because you, yeah. even whether you know it or not, right? You know Kevin Spacey's in this movie. You've heard he's in this movie, and he hasn't shown up for an hour, for an hour twenty. He's Kevin Spacey, so you know who he has to be. Mm-hmm. But well, the he's movie- actually he actually does show up early in the film. Because of the picture, but you don't uh, know. You don't know that, right? No, You're, no, even, no. Even, he's actually oh. he's actually in the film before that when they meet him on the staircase with the uh, uh, yes, with the camera, the yes. the paparazzi. Yeah, yeah. The but even but then, right? You, you don't know if you Kevin actually Spacey. if you pause the movie, it is Kevin Spacey. Oh like, yes, right. You can but actually you, see him. Like you don't right, know. You can't do that in ninety five in the movie theater. Yeah. yeah, in the movie theater in ninety five, you can't do that. Like you don't yeah. know that Kevin Spacey. So right, exactly. an hour and a half into the movie, you're still going. Like, is yeah, Kevin Spacey okay. in this movie? Yeah. <laughs> Where is Kevin Spacey? And then when he shows up, it's brilliant, obviously, and he right. has roughly ten minutes of screen time, <laughs> and it's some of the most yeah. iconic ten minutes of screen time ever because he nails the car scene and he yes. nails the scene at the end, like. Uh, there was it, also it, yeah that car scene. Um, Brad Pitt was already gone filming Twelve Monkeys, so he had to come back and film. And so there's like uh, there's I think at least like they said ten to fifteen minutes of like film where it's just Morgan Freeman and Kevin Spacey in the car, and they basically had to like splice like other scenes in there with Brad Pitt. And if you go back and look at his hair, like his hair is longer in that scene because his hair is grown out. So like, oh, he, enough yeah, because months. like there was there was at least I think two months between when he had wrapped filming to go on and then he had to go back after he was done filming Twelve Monkeys. I was like, oh okay, like I didn't really notice that before because you know for like I don't pay attention that much to like you know unless it's like wildly different hair. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff happens on movie sets all the time yeah. too. Like you'd you'd be surprised um, how infrequently like everyone's on set together. Like you'll do yeah. entire movies with people. You'll, I mean, genuinely, yeah. you'll do entire movies with people and never meet them because you don't, unless you actively need to be on camera at the same time, like you just don't have to be there. At the, like, right, and- exactly. Um, we did, uh, Six in a Podcast came on uh, last week, which we did Die Hard. And there was trivia mm-hmm. that Ellen um, Rickman and Bruce Willis did not meet until they actually filmed together. To keep up mm-hmm. the expense of um, Hans Gruber and uh, John McClane meeting for the first time, and they said that they really only shared two scenes together, and they didn't inter- barely barely interacted with each other off of like set either. Like it was, yeah. yeah. So, and sometimes it's just scheduling, like the way that they schedule yeah. movies. Like you won't necessarily be on set. I uh, I ju- I just did a, a big movie last year. Um, and and didn't meet the star despite working on the movie for like a month, <laughs> a month and a half. Yeah. Like, I, like you know, like um, yeah. I, I just did uh, Halloween Kills, and uh, I didn't meet Jamie Lee Curtis because okay. she was, she wasn't on set for the first month and a half of the movie. So <laughs> right. Okay, so um, we can talk a little bit then about the plot. But before we do that, I want to talk about how. The number seven is very important, obviously, because it's the title of the movie. Um, mm-hmm. We know that the seven is important because in the film, we're talking about the seven deadly sins. But mm-hmm. we also, the, one of the very first things that we see is that um, Somerset, who is played by Morgan Freeman, um, he is seven days from retirement. So that's basically yeah. where, like, the film opens. We realize that he, like, is ready to retire, but he has, to, like, his one week left. And there's a new um, detective coming in that he basically has to work with to get him up to speed. He's going to have his office. Detective Mills, played by Brad Pitt. Uh, We also see that um, 
obviously there's seven murders in the film because of the seven deadly sins. And then one of the last things that we see is that the package, uh, the box, which we'll talk about in great detail later, is delivered exactly at 7.01 p.m. So mm-hmm. clearly, yeah. So I also looked it up and um, in numerology, seven just means it's the number of completion. So it's basically like showing that the, of like um, at the end, John Doe's like his whole plan basically was completed. And so it basically brought the, the film for full circle. So I thought that was kind of interesting that seven is like, you know, symbolic in more ways than one, which I always find that interesting when, like film directors and writers can like weave that kind of symbolism into their story because I always feel like a sense of completion, honestly, when like those kind of things pay off and you're like, Oh, like this makes sense. Um, Yeah. It's also, it's also a reverse creation myth because Mills's world is destroyed in seven days. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, So when we are basically, when the film opens, uh, we do see that Somerset is getting ready to retire uh, he has been on the force. I, do, do, do you remember, did they say exactly how long he'd been there? I know he'd been there a, like a long time. It's been a very long time, but I can't remember if they specifically give okay. us the number of yeah, years. I, I don't number, think they did, but... Um, the number like 30, 30 something years has been yeah, given I think so. I at think some like point. 30, yeah, it's over 30 years for sure. And he basically, his, yeah, his captain, who was played by um, Arlie Ern- Ermy, who's he's been in a ton of movies. Uh, he since passed, so R.I.P. to him. But he was a great character actor. Like he was in a lot of really good films from the '90s, the late '80s. But he plays his captain, famous, most famously, Full Metal Jacket. Yes, yep. And he basically just tells him, like, "Are you sure you want to retire?" Because he's like, "I, I can't see you like just like not doing anything. Like, what do you, you know, what are you gonna do with your life?" And he's and he's basically like, "I'm just ready to move on. Like, I want to finish out whatever's going on here, and I want to get out of here." And so then we meet uh, Detective Mills, who's uh, Brad Pitt, and he basically, like, comes in, and we find out that he requested to, like, be transferred into the detective, like, into this, like, you know, uh, division, and Somerset asks him why. He's like, why would you request to, like, you know, come over here? And This thing uh, must be Gotham or something, y'all, with the way yeah. that they talk about it. Like it's never named. It's always raining, and they're like, "Why would you transfer here?" Like, exactly. <laughs> well, one of the interesting just... things about that is that they kind of talk about the fact, like, it is like Gotham. Like, people are always going insane, and like, there's like murders, like, on the street all the time. Like, uh, I think the detective's like, "Yeah, did you hear about whatever so and so murder?" He's like, "Yeah, I saw it on, on my way in." Like, yeah, things, yeah. Like, crazy things are happening all the time in the city. And so he does, he's like, why would you want to come here? And Brad Pitt's basically like, well, he's like, I just, you know, I I wanted my career to advance. And then later on, we also like find out from his wife, who's played by Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, that basically they lived out in the country and he like hated being, he basically didn't want, because he was like, it's farm life. I don't want to live out here. I want to live in an actual city where, you know, things are. And so we kind of see that. I think a part of it, I do think a part of it also is that I think that Brad Pitt's character wants to feel like there are things for him to be able to do to make the world better. And yes. wherever they were, it was too slow for him to feel like he could do it because he's not a patient man. So he needs right. to be yeah, able exactly. to try and make the world better now. And where are things happening? Terrible things happening all the time that I can try and solve. Well, wherever this unnamed terrible city is. Yeah. So um, almost instantly, uh, they are given a murder. And they're not quite sure if it's a murder or not, because, like, it's just this, like, overweight, obese man who has died, apparently, in a bowl of, I think, was it spaghetti that he was, like, eating? And it so, was spaghetti. Yes. 
So they go to his uh, house and it's like, obviously like smells like disgusting. And so they get there and they're investigating. And this is when Brad Pitt realizes that his like hands and his legs uh, have been tied. And so like, they're starting to realize that like something's like up here and that this is not just him like dying because he ate too much or like, you know, that this wasn't something that he did on his own. And so they, they realized pretty early on that he was for like, he was forced to eat. And then uh, at the autopsy, the, um, the coroner basically says, yeah, like there is a bruise on his temple. And this is where they realized that a gun was held to his head and he was forced to like basically eat himself to death. And um, Somerset basically at this point um, says that like, he does not want this to be his last case because I think Somerset immediately recognizes that this is not going to be like done in seven days. So he's like, please take me off this case and give me something else. And he's like, this new detective Mills, like, wants it, like, just give it to him. And the captain refuses and kicks Mills off and says, like, I'll, like, you'll get a different case. And so Mills isn't happy. Somerset's not happy. And then um, almost instantly, we get another murder, I think, right the next day. It's the next day, which do we have the intro between the intro happens between greed and or between gluttony and greed, right? That's whenever we get the opening credits. Yes. Right. Because I have to give a shout out to this intro. Yeah. <laughs> um, not only because it's amazing, but also because it uses a Nine Inch Nails song. Um, and later on in David Fincher's career, Trent Reznor has become his main um, composer. Like his main, the person who does his yeah. scores. Um, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And Atticus Ross, yeah. So for them to use that Nine Inch Nails song, I kind of, I've, I found that really entertaining that I was like, oh, not only is this amazing, but also, hey, look at you. Again, the pieces of David Fincher are there. The pieces of David Fincher yes. are there for what, like, give him like, because he, he adopts, he adopts Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross in 2010 and has been essentially exclusively working with them since then. Yeah, so. right. Um, I think uh, he went on to win an Oscar for a score later. So, yeah, like, he yeah, really, yeah, he, he really uh, did help out. The, yeah. Uh, one of the other interesting things is that the guy that actually created the credits here um, is so, like, revered by, like, Hollywood that there are, direct, or there are directors who refuse to use him because they think that his credits are better than the films that they're doing. So they're like, <laughs> seriously, they they're be. like, we can't have him doing, like, our credits because people are going to expect more than we can deliver. But uh, Fincher, I know. Oh, and like, it's crazy. It's crazy than that. These opening credits, um, the props team spent months right. putting to like literally writing out hundreds of those notebooks. So the notebooks yep. that are in that scene and are in those opening are completely filled with writing that you could read that yes. would be that would be John Doe's like inner um, monologue. Yeah. And right, and they is. also said, like, I think they they said they spent fifteen thousand dollars on the materials because each one was hand sewn, and so like, it, yeah, it was like crazy amount of production from the prop team that went into the like into John Doe's like crazy library, which they said it did take two months, and Morgan Freeman said that it would take a normal like cop two months to read all of those books as well. And Fincher almost cut it, like he was almost like, this yeah. is too long. Like, I don't, we don't, it's in the middle of the, it's, it's, the movie's already started and this is too long. The only, the reason he didn't cut it is because he didn't want to waste their work. Which mm-hmm. good. Great choice. Great choice. Great, Great choice. choice. Because yeah, it, like in the, the guy that did it, like he went on to have, like he still is working in Hollywood and he has a lucrative career because other directors are like, okay, get this guy because he can put together amazing credits. I wonder if he did the girl with the dragon tattoo credits. Cause those are also really dope. 
I'm not exactly sure because I didn't look up the name, but I'm pretty sure that yes, because I know for for a fact that Fincher likes to reuse a lot of the same actors and the, the same, same people. Smith. So he keeps. Yeah, so, yeah he keeps. <laughs> um. So yeah. Um. Yeah, and then like you were saying, sorry, I interrupted before we got to greed. <laughs> um. Because the next day, you know, Somerset's like, I'm done this i can't sit with this case and then of course greed pops up um and brad pitt gets called and he's trying to deal with it um it, it is more obviously uh one of the seven deadly sins like greed is not hidden it is written on the yep. floor um it, it's not a cat and mouse game at this point um the killer has decided to full-on write on the walls and on the floor what this man's sin was um, and so, and that's also in that setup where we get that, um, the obese man had bits of floor fed into, fed to him. Well, what Morgan Freeman figures out is floor. Uh, and so because Somerset, Morgan Freeman goes back to the, goes back to the obese man's house and sees that the fridge has been moved and scraped and he moves it and there's the words gluttony. And at that point, how do you turn away from this case? Yeah. Right? Like, and so, well, this, I think this is where Somerset tells the captain, he's like, well, he's like, you have two deadly sins and there are five more coming. And he's like, and I'm out basically. He's like, I got to leave. He's like, cause this is going to, at that point he knows like this will take longer than, um, seven days and he's like you need to give the case to mills but he's he's basically like i will get research i will give everything to mills mills can take it from here yeah and even the way and he says that but it doesn't it doesn't end up happening like somerset <laughs> doesn't let it go because we see that that night right somerset does is goes to a library and does intensive research he starts looking through the books looking through everything that he can think of that goes for the seven deadly sins. Um, and I, I found it interesting, again, the juxtaposition for them, Somerset's research versus Brad Pitt, Mills's character that night is sitting there obsessing over the pictures, just staring at the pictures. He isn't doing any outside research. He is staring at what's in front of him and trying to figure out what he's not seeing in front of him. Um, and, and I thought, that the, I don't know, for some reason their research styles and everything, again, the juxtaposition of the two was really interesting. Also, also uh, I think it shows that Somerset too, the like he's been on, you know, this job for thirty some years. So he realizes it takes multiple ways, you know, like it's going to be multiple ways of doing things before you may break a case. So you may have to do outside research. You may have to go to find informants. You may have to do all kinds of things to get to what you need, and you can't just stare at the pictures like yeah. the entire time. And so I kind of found this really interesting too, where he gives him the list of the books. And he tells them, like, these are the books you need to go read. And then Mills can't read Dante because he can't decipher. He's like, I don't know what this means. So he has to actually have another, like, police officer get him the Cliff's Notes. I appreciate that he went through the effort to get the Cliff's Notes, though. Like, he went through yeah. the effort to get the Cliff's Notes. He was like, forget this. I'm just going to get Cliff's Notes. But it does say that he's taking it to heart, right? Mm -hmm. It says that he's taking the suggestions to heart. Um, and there was also a shot whenever Mills was... Um, studying over the photos he did this stretch and it was this top down shot that fincher has similar ones like it in his other other things but the way brad pitt stretches his neck and his head 
looked disem like disembodied, like it didn't look like it was attached to his body, which mm -hmm. all things considered towards the end of the what happens at the end of the movie, I found that really not only is it an interesting shot anyway, but also making his head look detached from his body in that moment in his house while he is just relaxing, where it could possibly be where his wife is later decapitated, I found interesting. I was shot whenever we watched it. I was like, oh, that's that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you never know. It could be foreshadowing. Like, this is going to, you know, it's, this will be important later on. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the captain, we laughed about this. The captain has a line whenever they're both sitting at the desk. That, like, they're, whenever it rings, the captain answers it and just answers, this ain't even my desk, and hangs up. And I was like. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I saw that, too. And I was like, that's really funny. Like. He's like this. Like he just hangs up on him. Like who cares? <laughs> Had to be an improv on set because why even answer the phone? Why even answer the phone? <laughs> Not your desk. Yeah. So I really like. Yeah. I thought that Sorry. was no. I thought that was very very like because sometimes like this movie's so heavy, so there needs to be a little bit of like comic relief in there because otherwise the movie is too heavy. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's what a couple of the the lines I wrote down specifically were just funny ones. Um, which they, we move into that whole dinner scene with uh, Tracy and Mills and Somerset. Yes. Um, it is one of the tension relieving scenes in the movie. Probably the only real tension relieving scene in the movie. Um, like you get this nice rapport. I think it's important because I think it gives a nice different view to Mills. Like yes. It gives more to him than him just being this hothead um, that he is. Well, I think well, it also shows that, like, Tracy can kind of temper him and get him to calm down. Where, yeah. like, they are very good. Like, you can tell in their relationship, like, they're almost opposites that, like, you know, she helps him out a lot, calms him down. And, like, he can at least laugh and let go of some of that stress. Which, one of the things here that I did not understand is when um, Tracy is talking to Somerset. And Somerset's like, oh, yeah, I understand that you're high school sweethearts. And at this point, I'm like, you and Mills don't even talk. Like, how in the world did you know this? So, I mean, but... it might be a thing. They don't talk that much, but Mills does love his family. And he loves right. her enough that he probably mentioned it. Like, in passing, it might have been a, a brief message, but Somerset is an observant human being, and he clocks everything, right? So I could see it happening in passing, him just casually being like, well, yeah, we've been together since high school. Um, and Somerset just kind of takes that in. What's also really interesting about this scene is I think it's actually um, one of the most important scenes for Somerset. Uh, and I think it, I think this scene starts everything that we get later from Somerset as a character and the entire impetus for him reversing his decision about leaving and about staying on the case. Um, we talked, you get, you, you, we talked a little bit earlier about the, you know, about the worldview that they have, that Somerset has, right? He's repeatedly saying that this city is terrible, that everything is disgusting. And, and, and I, what's interesting about that is I, I think it's meant to reflect his capable worldview. Somerset does not have anything in his life outside of his work. Um, we get that story later with Tracy about his um, wife or girlfriend. Girlfriend. Girlfriend, right? Um, we get the story about his girlfriend and the pregnancy. And we, so we understand that Somerset has done nothing else but um, 
homicide detective, basically, right? He's, right? he's working in the mud, as it were. And it's all he can see. He can only see the mud. He can only see the violence. He can only see the decay. He can only see the bad things that people do to each other. Brad Pitt's character comes in from out of town and wanted to come to this city, which Somerset doesn't understand. Why would you want to come here? There's nothing here but what I see day in and day out. But I think this dinner scene the com and, and the diner scene later with Tracy um, advances even further. But here in the dinner scene, like he comes to dinner with these people from out of town who do not know this city, who do not know him. And he has a genuine moment of like connection to them, laughter with them, understanding yes. that there is there is joy and happiness from people who haven't spent their entire lives in the mud of this city. I think I think what ends up happening here in this in this movie for Somerset that started in this dinner and is, is a big part of his arc is the reminder that there is a world outside of the mud of doing this job day in and day out with nothing else on the outside. Yeah. The the fact that the fact that this couple came here from out of town and were so um poor so bad at the job of scouting apartments that they let a landlord <laughs> show them the apartment five times for five minutes at a time. Right, one exactly. One, how did you time that, buddy? Mr. Landlord, how'd you time that out that every time they came, you had five minutes? And two, <laughs> you never came back to the place any other time before you moved in? Like, that was it's so crazy. But, like, they are naive, and they don't know any better, and they came in just wanting somewhere new and something to do and wanting to do good in the city. And it's such an... It's such a stark, I think, reminder for Somerset that there is life outside of homicide, that there are human beings doing something other than murdering each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think well, that starts his eventual turn into going, no, I'm going to stay on and work this case. No, I'm going to stay on. The world is, um, the world is worth fighting for. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things though, like you were talking about the scene where they're laughing, like Mills or Somerset's delivery of that line where he's like, yeah, the soothing, relaxing, uh, vibrating home where like where it's breaking the tension like he like his deadpan delivery of that is like so perfect that like and immediately mm -hmm. because like you're saying this like outlandish thing and so like you could tell like it takes um tracy off guard and so she starts just laughing because it's funny like yeah like think of this home as like it's a vibrating home it's like soothing relaxing like you know you know look at it this way and so i really enjoyed that because then it, it broke the tension to the fact that mills and somerset are now comparing their notes and they're actually starting to work together for the first time. Yeah, they're taking those two research, those two research uh, manners. Approaches. Approaches. Yes. And they're putting them together, which is what really needs to happen. Because you need to have some, like, you need to know the lore, but also you need to be sitting there looking and watching and observing. So I wanted to talk about that real quick. So have you guys ever seen the movie, uh, it's a Dan Brown, uh, Angels and Demons? I haven't seen Angels and Demons. I saw Da Vinci Code okay, back in so, the day. But, yeah, so actually, I was going to talk about like that whole series, Da Vinci Code. But with the, that movie with Tom Hanks, I remember yeah. sitting through that movie, and he like was like going over and talking about all the lore. And I remember falling asleep in the movie theater watching that. <laughs> and I thought that I had to go back and watch it a second time. And again, I was like ready to fall asleep. And I was like, this is the most boring, dry way to ever like give information to an audience. Like 
It's, mm-hmm. it's nothing but like it literally felt like 45 minutes of exposition. I'm like, get to the point, please. Like, I hated it. And I was like, I felt like it was condescending. It talked down to the audience. It was pointless. But here, when you have Morgan Freeman telling the audience what's going on with this lore, I was like invested. I was on the edge of my seat because I wrote down in my notes that he said that um, the killer is using a medieval technique of preaching. He's using the seven deadly sins as a teaching tool and using forced attrition to atone for their sins. And like he's explaining what's going on and he's putting it into words like layman's terms that are very easy to understand. But I just saw like this is such a diff, like almost like completely different than what they did in the Da Vinci Code. And I hated what they did in the Da Vinci Code. But this, so I was like, no, this works where it's very short, like small bits that Morgan Freeman is like delivering as his character. It's no more than five minutes. And it's so much more easy to digest than having a full like 25 minute exposition on this background, this lore of, you know, like demons and angels and all that kind of thing. Well, admittedly, you can't compare apples to sawdust. And like, <laughs> like, se- you know, Seven is a much better film than anything that the Da Vinci yes. Code, <laughs> Angels and Demons movies do. I mean, the Da Vinci, like, the Da Vinci Code works kind of, like, works if you like that sort of thing in book form. Like, I read the book. Right. It works in book form because it is just somebody, you know, the character is working through this stuff in his head mostly. So it's it's written as as you know, it's written as as prose and, and you go with it. In a movie though, you have to have a character constantly explaining things, every single line out of his mouth for anyone else to understand anything that's going on. It yeah. doesn't work. But David Fincher as a director, um He's actually quite adept at this. Like mm-hmm. his movies feature a lot of this because F- Seven's not the only movie that features it. Fight Club has entire sections that are just Brad Pitt ram- rambling off philosophies to people. Um, the Social Network has huge sections that are yes. just about yep. the tech industry. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, um, Zodiac. I mean, the entire movie of Zodiac is just people trying to solve a crime. Solves uh, the, the Zodiac, solve the Zodiac, right? Like David Fincher is able to do this, and then and then in some instances he has great writers helping him do it. I mean, um, you know, Social Network and Steve Jobs have the benefit of Aaron Sorkin. Mm-hmm. who can write exposition like very few other people. Um, and, and not just exposition, but characters explaining things to each other. Nobody does it quite like Aaron, Aaron Sorkin. Um, and then in the other movies, I mean, David Fincher is able to direct around that kind of stuff. So it, it, it actually is just a, a, an adept director to feed us scenes that exist in most movies of this genre and in a lot of other movies, but in a way that it, you're right, doesn't feel laborious like it does in some movies. But it exists, like it needs to be there. Yeah, yeah. Right. Like no. this is how you film people cracking a case: is them walking through the case. Yeah. Like, yeah, they have, and them them discovering and them verbalizing what is helping them discover. Right. One of the things mm-hmm. that really like, so obviously, like watching, like seeing, like the bodies and stuff is like disturbing. But this one of the things that really like messed me up very early on is uh, during this scene in the the living room. Where um, Mills doesn't understand why, like, nobody saw because this happened in a building. Like, how did nobody see this or, like, nobody, like, stopped to help? And this is where Somerset tells them that, like, learning to mind your own business in a city like this is basically a science. That, yeah, like, you, like, if somebody is yelling, help me, th- nobody is going to come help you because they don't want to get involved. But if you yell fire, that could directly affect them. So they will come like to help you. And he's like, we, then he basically says we teach 
like anti-rape like you know lessons and we tell women you need to yell fire don't yell rape and i was like the fact that this city has to teach this to women like and this is where he uh super like or mill says this is messed up and i was like i totally agree i felt so uncomfortable after watching that scene because like even it kind of even hits home like in our actual culture and society that this is something that i could be happening that people will not come if you yell help but they will come if you yell fire or something that would affect them well there are i mean there are documented cases where people have listened to people being murdered um and didn't get involved because everyone assumed uh that someone else was getting involved to help bystander effect. It's yeah. the bystander effect is what it's yeah. called yeah like if it, you know if too many people witness witness an event no one helps because everyone assumes that someone else has already helped um, it's one of the reasons that they tell you to not assume that people have called 911. Call 911. Regardless, yeah, to do it, yeah. Like call 911 uh, because they can have multiple calls, but we'll, what will happen frequently, there's a very famous murder case. Um, I, I'm, Kitty I'm, Givenes. Yes, yes, the, yeah, the Kitty Givenes case in which like people heard her being assaulted um, and then her assaulter left and came back and like murdered her and people were still just listening to it happen because no one wanted to get involved and ever or assumed that other people had already gotten involved to stop it or had already called the police and then no one did. Yeah. 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 And it's, and, and again, it's another thing of um, their different mindsets and their different, different worldviews. There's a set of worldview that Somerset has accepted that this is the way this is. This is the way that you have to accept the world is. And Mills, it, Mills's instinct is just that screwed up. That's mm -hmm. terrible. Like he is a hothead, but also he he still thinks that that's screwed up. He also hasn't spent thirty plus years exactly right only in only the only in the right? He has other things in his life. I think I think that's a big part of Somerset's issue, and we see that so brilliantly in the shots of him at home, where it's just the metronome. There's no other sound in his apartment because he has nothing. aside from the terrible sounds outside, except for the terrible sounds outside. Um, Amplified, I'm sure, in his head by the thought that he'll have to clean them up later. Mm -hmm. Right? He'll have to take right. care of those issues. So, like, it, it again, it highlights the fact that, like, he has nothing else to fight for. Yeah. And so he can only see, he has nothing good, so he can only see the bad. Yeah. And Mills has good things in his life and therefore wants to fight the bad because he can see the good. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, so um, at this point, they find a picture and, th like, there is, uh, like, glasses drawn on, the like, the picture of, like, someone in the background of his office, and they realize it's his wife, and so they realize they have to go talk to her. And so, What's funny about that is the first time they show us that apartment, that picture is clearly visible. Yes. Like, I noticed it right away, mm -hmm. and then they, they kind of, like, I, I was like, they are they focus treating on this it. like a reveal? They focus on it, yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they notice it later, I guess, when they're going over the case file, but they end up going back to her apartment and they ask her, like, look through the pictures. Is anything out of place? And she finally realizes that the picture is upside down. So um, they go there. They try to figure out what's going on. They, like, literally rip apart the canvas. There's nothing there. And then Morgan Freeman's, like, character comes in and he gets up on, like, the table and he starts, like, dusting the wall and he finds the fingerprints that spell out help me um, in there. Which I thought was, that was very clever. Like, I thought that was, like, a cool reveal there. It's so clever. And then whenever you figure out how he got those fingerprints on there, it's even more horrifying. Oh, yeah. Man. Because they, 
Yeah, because he uses somebody else's. He uses the next victim's like fingerprint yeah. to do it. Yeah, I, I well, well, let's get through it, and then I have I have to get into just a major thing about this about the about John Doe about John okay. Doe. I, I have so many things to talk about, but we okay. ha- I, it, so, it'll just be better if we get through the whole thing, and right. then we can so, talk well, about John Doe's the, plan. The thing that we find out, they run the fingerprints through. This guy does have a criminal record. His name's Theodore Allen. He uh, served time in prison for assault, armed robbery, and drug possession. And the connection here is, and this is the first time that the victims have a connection that they realize, is that he is actually, he was actually served by Eli Gould, who was the attorney that got uh, killed, that he actually had been his defense attorney. And so now there is a little bit of a connection there, and they realize, okay, like these are definitely all by the same person. So um, the captain thinks that this is over because he's like, we have the killer now. And so they're like, just go arrest him and this will be all over. But Somerset and Mills both are like, nope, this is just beginning because we already know that this is seven deadly sins. This is now, there's only two, there's five more coming. And so they go to Alan's house to arrest him. And of course it's raining because it literally rains in every scene in this film. Every scene, every scene, except for the last one, it is raining. Yes. So uh, when they finally get to the to his apartment, uh, they find him tied to the bed, and it looks like he has died. Like he is so emaciated, like his oh teeth are sticking out. Like it, he looks like a corpse. And so uh, they find out because through the the evidence and clues left there that this guy has been there for uh, it's like a year to the day, basically that this had been like one full year. And so this is now where Somerset is realizing that this guy, like whoever is doing this is like so intelligent. Like he's so like, he's been planning this for a year and he's like, okay, he's like, we're up against something that he, I don't even think he realizes like how advanced this like killer is. There are some horrifying, all of the deaths are horrifying in this movie. None of them are on screen. You don't see any actual yeah, violence. Yeah, none of them are on screen. screen right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and this <laughs> Oh, and um, and even, but, even this guy like didn't die on screen. So no, he didn't. He dies off screen. And I, out of all of the different deaths, I think this one might be, might be the most horrifying purely because of the amount of time that it took. Oh, this yes. is awful. Um, mm-hmm. Like the fact that it was a year that that man was strapped to that bed to slowly rot while still being alive is right. Exactly. Alive. Uh, okay, and was- so, there, so there is actually trivia here because they take the SWAT team in with them. And yeah. so they, they uh, Fincher basically refused to tell the SWAT team that he was not dead. So the SWAT team, when they get up there, he coughs on them. That is their real reaction because they thought he was supposed to be like dead. So their reaction is actually like it, it's real, but Fincher did it on purpose because he wanted like their most authentic reaction. So I thought that was very like the chest like, clever. It's so like the chest burster and alien. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like, chest um, burster and alien, which is also a real reaction. That is also a real actor yeah, lying on that bed. Exactly, that is not yeah, a problem. Exactly. Well, yeah. And that so they actor. said too that they actually, actually had put a casting call out for somebody who was like around 90 pounds. They got somebody who was 96 pounds like just naturally and he said yeah can you lose like six pounds and the guy's like they just laughed about it and he came back he actually had for the film oh wow <laughs> so i was like that's crazy to think that like you know he went that full in to do that um what i thought was Layout. like worse like and terrible is the fact that like they say like he bit his tongue off so he, he could never talk to them regardless they yeah uh, the doctor also said that he'd been pumped full of these antibiotics basically keep his like bed sores from getting infected so somebody was doing to this 
to this, like, uh, to him on purpose. Like, all of his muscles had, like, deteriorated to the point, like, he would never be able to walk. And he's at his brain is mush. And they basically tell him, like, he will never speak again. Like, he's going yeah. to die in the hospital. And so he does end up passing away in the hospital. And I absolutely agree that this is, like, a horrific way to go. Like, that's a horrible death. Um, and Man. so at th- this point, we realize... Yeah. Like it would be a horrific way to survive. John also yeah. John Doe's uh John Doe's uh, uh, resources. I know you have more about John Doe. Oh, my goodness. So I won't talk get about into John it Doe for an hour. I can <laughs> talk about John Doe's plan for an hour and Just, the many many ways in which I'm like, you know what? This is brilliant in a movie, but I you could not do this in real life. In real life, right. Um, this is, it doesn't work. But so at this point this is where they realize this is this is now sloth. So that's the third um death here. And then Tracy calls Somerset and asks to meet him. And he's like, why? Like, why? So he's very confused. But they meet for breakfast the next day. And she basically tells him, like, you're the only person in the city that I know outside of my husband. So she's like, I need to talk to somebody. And this is where she reveals that she's pregnant. But she doesn't know that she wants to tell um, her husband. Because, like, he's so excited to be there. But, like, it's a lot of stress. And so, like, she's just not sure what she should do. And, um this is where Somerset tells her, like, I was in a relationship similar to yours. We weren't married, but it was very similar to that. And she told me that she was pregnant and I got scared and I asked her to have an abortion and it basically ruined their lives. Like it ruined their relationship. So he, mm-hmm. he tells her, like, if you do not, keep, if you decide not to keep the baby to make it easier on you and your husband, never tell him that you were pregnant. But if you do keep it, spoil that kid every single day. So you see here that he does have regrets. Like uh, Somerset has a lot of regrets. Like oh, oh I'm, I got I got to I got to <laughs> jump in here with the best line in the movie. Yeah. Uh, the best line in the movie is Somerset after telling that story, telling her, "I know I made the right decision, but there isn't a single day that goes by that I wish I hadn't made a different one." Which is the, that is the best line in the movie. It is yeah. one of the most heartbreaking <laughs> things I have ever heard a person say. He, I mean, because it's so, and it's so brilliantly worded. I know I made the right decision, but there isn't a day that goes by that I don't wish I'd made a different one. Is heartbreaking. Yeah. 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 Heartbreaking because he, he can't, he can't. He, in the moment, he couldn't make any other decision, and it was the right decision. It was what needed to happen. But he wishes he had made the wrong choice to keep a wife and child. Exactly. So, the bit, like, to, to me, I was like, wow, child. like, you really get Somerset's, like, backstory here, too. So, you're like, whoa, this is very boring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, I, I do feel bad for Somerset because it's like, hi, I just met you. Um, also, here's all of my emotional baggage. All of it. I just exactly, let me yeah. lay every single bit of my emotional baggage out because you're the only person I know in this city. I'm like, oh my but goodness. I, I also cool. think it kind of works because, like, just like Gwyneth Paltrow and Morgan Freeman have like this very natural chemistry, I think. So yeah. it was actually really nice to see them have like that kind of like bond and. Like, she really is the reason that he was able to form a bond with um, Mills as well. So I thought, like, I really liked, like, her character. Um, And Fincher said that, like, her character was really, like, the only spot of sunshine in the movie. And it was, like, made that way on purpose. That, like, she was meant to be, like, a little bit of, like, you know, light in the movie full of darkness. Her and those dogs. Yeah. Dogs. So, Um. um, at this point, 
they realize that uh, they, they go and talk to the landlord of this building. And he says, well, Vic, like Victor, the victim had always had a cash like of his rent, like in his box every single month. And so he said, like, <laughs> he was quiet. He never spoke. And like, he's the best, like, you know, renter I've ever had. And so this is where Mills is like, okay, this guy is methodical. He is very well planned. And um, Mills is like, no, no, this guy's insane and psycho. And Simmer's like, he's not like insane. Like he, like he's very like smart. He's very intelligent. And he's trying to get across like to Mills that this guy is probably more intelligent than like even we are because he's like always a step ahead. And one of my yeah. favorite lines in the movie comes here where Mills tells Somerset, uh, having a library card doesn't make someone Yoda. Because <laughs> he said, like, this guy clearly, like, did his research. And so Somerset ends up taking him to the library. He's like, let's go to the library. Like, we're going to go on a field trip. But first they go to the pizza joint. And this, like, heavyset guy walks in at first. You're like, I honestly, the first time I saw this movie, thought he was, like, an informant or something. And then later he, it's revealed that he's actually an FBI agent, that he's been working, like, he's worked with uh, Somerset before. And he basically does this illegal, like, wiretapping of library records, which really dates the movie because this all changed in 2001 with the Patriot Act, where now they actually have full legality to go after people's library records. But back then, it was, like, this huge no-no. And so he's like, you're doing something illegal. and like Back then, we couldn't dream of the government invading our privacy. (laughs) That scene actually made me giggle a little bit because I was like, yeah, this is not at all what, like, life of 2020 is like now because, yeah, like, you can literally find anything about anyone now. And, like, now there's, like, this big meme and joke that every single person has their own FBI agent, right? So. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, it's. If you're listening, hey, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry if you need therapy if you if you look at the things I look up. <laughs> um, so they, they end up getting the information and they find out that the guy that they're looking for's name is Jonathan Doe. And I'm like, of course his name is Jonathan Doe. And so, they, but there is an actual like address on file for him. And so they go to the address and they get up there. They see a strange figure come up the steps like at the end of the hallway and like, he's wearing, like, a trench coat, and he's wearing, like, a... It, he looks almost like a detective from, like, those old, like, you know, like, uh, P.I., like, cartoons. And then he yeah. fires on them. And this, like, leads to this huge fight scene where uh, Brad Pitt's character, Mills, is chasing after him. And they go through uh, an apartment, somebody's apartment. He makes it out onto, like, um, the terrace. He jumps down into the alleyway, and he runs out, and then into traffic. And this is where Brad Pitt, um, actually, he injured himself to the point that he had to get surgery. He was running across these cars, and his arm went through a windshield, and he, he basically tore it up to the point where, like, ligaments were showing, his arm was dangling, and he re- he didn't tell Fincher until the end of the shoot what had happened, and they, he actually was bleeding out, and they had to take him to the emergency room right away, and he had to have surgery. <laughs> like, it's, a, but it's, it's brilliant. So this whole chase scene, it's funny, because I can see Mills keeping track of John Doe. Mm-hmm. I don't know where the heck Somerset is going. Yeah. This is <laughs> admitted- like, what was he doing? <laughs> this is admittedly some of the sloppiest filmmaking in the movie because I do, it is a, it is an action, it is the only action sequence in the movie. It is the movie's like action centerpiece. Yeah. And I do not understand where anyone is. Like I, I have a vague understanding of where in the apartment 
uh, Mills and John Doe are, although all the apartments seem to be linked door to door and all yeah, the doors. Exactly. Are I'm like, like, how does this work? <laughs> that doesn't work yeah. that all the apartments are linked door to door, not from the hallway. Like so genuinely I, well, there are was, I was wondering if this was an old hotel set where like, hotel, the, the, oh, yeah. that's joining rooms, actually, you know? And I was like, I, but even I bet then, it like, was like yeah. I bet it was a conjoining room hotel that they filmed in, and because yeah, exactly. and they were like, okay, well then this is how well this is how we'll do the chase, even though as apartments that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't. But, <laughs> but, but then I'm like, but then yeah, like we were saying, where is Somerset? Like the 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 navigation of the building doesn't allow Somerset to be missing as long as he is. Like it also seemed like he just pieced out. He was like, well, you go run off. I'm gonna go wander to this different place, and I have no idea well, where no, he he does tell him like I'm gonna go downstairs and try to cut him off, and then like yeah. he just disappears. Like, you know, like, where he, did he go? He disappears into a. It, it, he's in a different building, and I don't know how he got into a different building. Yeah, you know what, by not know, what I'm thinking there. is that he probably just like went downstairs, got a hot dog and a coffee. This is like this is a the whole time watching it, I was like, oh my god, that's right. This is in the middle of seven. Exactly. Yeah. After that terrible editing. After that sloppy chase scene, though, we get the shots of Brad Pitt and John Doe in the alleyway. Yeah. And like where we get John Doe's um John Doe's reflection in the water and then the blurred angle where Brad Pitt is in focus in front and John Doe is this blurry figure in the back with the gun to Brad Pitt's hand mm -hmm. and her head. I loved those shots. Like I thought that was just a beautiful 30 seconds right there. Of yeah, I, going, it, like they're still like concealing the fact that it's Kevin Spacey. So yeah, it's really cool. Like I think it's awesome too because like I just I even remember watching it the first time that I had no idea who it was until like it's the final reveal and you're like oh my gosh yeah. it's Kevin Space and you're like what like I remember that too and I was just like like this is crazy like I, and so they do such a good job of keeping it hidden that you know the killer is Kevin Spacey all along and so um, I thought it was really cool and I just like when he is going to shoot him and then he just like runs away. I was so confused. I was like, why did he just shoot him? Because uh, he wasn't finished. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. His, sequence, his sequence wasn't finished. Because maybe his whole plan doesn't really make sense. <laughs> well, so my other thing, though, here is that, like, this is, I think this is his first time, like, he's, he's recognizing that Mill, like, is, like, Mill clearly, like, has some, like, anger issues. And so I'm wondering if his plan changed here and he's, decides he's going to use Mills. He already he already knows he already knows Mills has anger issues because he took his picture earlier and Mills almost yeah. beat him up with the picture. It's huh huh we, we got to we'll keep going. But John Doe's plan is is intricate and then the way you're watching the movie it's so cool, but if you actually think about it it makes no sense and I don't understand several uh, of them. Yeah. particularly the last few the last few sins i'm like bro you phoned this in i don't know what you were doing <laughs> this is just because the movie needs to end <laughs> uh, yeah so they so they end up going back to the apartment and like mills is like irate somerset finally shows up um <laughs> and um he like mills is like we gotta go in because like this guy opened fire at us and somerset says you can't do that because we don't have probable cause and he's like what do you mean we don't have probable cause and he's like like none of this will be admissible you can't do this he's like you need to do it by the book so that when we go to trial like everything is good and so this vehicle is connected by OnStar. um mills asks um 
them if they still had any of that money left over where they were going to be um, using it to, to for their informant. And so they actually end up paying someone to say that they saw this guy murder somebody in oh. the alley. Yes, but first he kicks that door open. He does. He does <laughs> kick it open. <laughs> thus, thus guaranteeing John Doe would walk on a technicality. A hundred percent. That's the reason why he hired that woman. A hundred percent. Oh, we've lost you a little. Hold on. Hold on. I'm going to fix it right now. Okay. All right, is that better? That's better. Yes. There okay. we go. Um, okay, so yeah, so when he hired that woman, it was clear that like that he had to cover up what he just did. So obviously, oh yeah, because he would like that. You you can't do that. That's bad police <laughs> procedure. And immediately, like the, Somerset even tells him, like, "Hey man, no, you can't do this." And I like the fact that Mills does it anyway is just like, well. <laughs> That's who's gonna walk because n- now nothing yeah. you do matters. Like he's going to walk. So I think like, yeah. So they they get that woman and then he's like, okay, we fix that. Like we're okay, and this like we took care of it. It'll be fine. Um, and so they end up. This is where then they finally get to research his apartment, and this is where they find those books of his crazy ramblings. And this is where Somerset is starting to realize that like this guy clearly thinks that he's like on some kind of mission. That he has something that he has to fulfill. And he, like, he knows that, like, this is not going to end. Like, he's going to... He has those boxes of trophies, y'all. Right. Yep. A hand is there. Mm -hmm. The hand that he used to write help me is there. Yep. I just have to... It's so screwed up. Well, and they also, like, the fact that he took pictures of all the victims, and they're all up there. And so they could see, and he was like, oh, this is, like, this is bad. Yeah, <laughs> and then Mills freaks out because he goes in the bathroom, and then there's pictures that had been developed that were in the bathtub, and he's like, "Somerset, Somerset, get in here!" So Somerset starts running, thinking that maybe so, like you know John Doe's in the building or something, and he goes in there, and he's like, "We had him in the stairwell, and we let him get away." And this is where he realizes that they met him in the stairway <clears throat> of um the like the vic the sloth victim actually, and so um he was kind of like uh. As upset about that, the fact that they already knew who it was, but they they couldn't get him then. Well, they didn't know who it was. That's that's the thing. They had no idea who it was. Right. They, he's upset because they interacted with him. Yes. And Brad Pitt wanted to beat his butt anyway. Yeah. yeah. He was like, oh yes, I yeah. wanted to. But he didn't. Beat him they down. didn't. They didn't know who it was. <laughs> They've just interacted with him. Ah, uh, so that's what. So it's even more. He's like, oh yes, I wanted to beat him up even before I knew he exactly. was exactly. So right. yeah, and so like you thought he's frustrated. Can you there. stopped him, Somerset. Um, <laughs> and he should have. He should have so, stopped it. Um, this is where they realize that they ha- they're gonna have like they have another victim because they have to go mm-hmm. to the sex club, and so they go there and they're taken down to the door and it has lust carved in it. So you know, okay, this is the next deadly sin. And this is, like, for me, I was just, like, my stomach turned when I found out, like, what happened here. I just, it was so gross. So, they find a man who, went, he, like, was tied up, basically. And uh, they first go, and they realize that this guy made, basically, like, a dildo. But instead of, like, the attachment, it was, a, like, a it was a blade. And mm-hmm. 
he, this guy was forced to wear it to rape this prostitute until he killed her, basically, until she bled out and died. And it is my favorite scene in the whole movie, honestly. And it's because it is the scene you see the least in. Yeah. But it is the scene that through verbal description, it's um, so, yeah. I, they paint, they paint such a, they paint such a, 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 a clear picture without actually laying out um, right eye. There was a blade attached to this. Like he just says, we see the picture and then he says, he made me put it on and he made me have sex with her. Uh, and I did it. And like, he's horrified and shaking. Um, mm -hmm. But right, he doesn't say what was attached to it or anything. You have to visually put your clues together. And I mean, um, there's also a picture of it, though. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You there's have a to picture take of the device. Uh, yeah. There's a picture of the, the, the device, but we never see the woman. And the man never actually says what's on the device. He just yeah. says he made it put it on. So like, if you aren't paying attention you might not even pick up 100% what happened to her. But when you're paying attention to everything there, like you said, it's stomach curdling. It might be the Ooh. most violent scene in the movie because Fincher makes us imagine what happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Doesn't show us what happened. He doesn't show us pictures of what like he does he doesn't do any of the work. He makes us do the work ourselves, which makes it worse. Because I'm sure whatever I was picturing is worse than you would describe it or Fincher could describe it. Like it just Yeah. 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 We have to we basically have to brutalize ourselves in that scene. Mm-hmm. Um this leads to a really interesting uh, conversation between Mills and Somerset where Mills is like so upset and like, he is like, like he's starting to lose it here. And Somerset's like, you need to take a step back and not be so emotionally invested. He's like, you need to just like remove emotion and do your job. And Mills like fires back and says, you're only saying this because you're like retiring in like a couple of days and you like, you don't care anymore. And he's like, I, and this is where he says like, I want to make a difference. Like I want to like prove that I can, you know, help people. And he says, like, you're the one that, like, doesn't have the emotions anymore because you're removing them because you're leaving. And then Mills goes home and he's, like, spooning with his wife. And, like, you can tell, like, he has, like, this good life. He can go into bed with her. And then on the opposite, the juxtaposition is that Mills is tossing and turning. He finally gets up. He starts using his switchblade to throw, like, to do target practice on a dartboard. And you can tell, like, he can't sleep. And then you get the metronome in the background where... It's, like, very quiet in his apartment. And so you actually get to see that Mills, I think, kind of got to Somerset, where Somerset is starting to think that, like, maybe I am, like, you know, too emotionally, like, shut off and that I do need to put a little bit more emotion in when I'm, like, you know, working on these cases. Or it's proof that he's not that emotionally shut off, right? That, like, yeah. he might appear it, but it sits. Whereas he might not emotionally react in the moment, it he can't sleep at night because it still sits exactly right yeah um, yeah and so i thought that was that was a very interesting like like two scenes there back to back where i was like okay like this is actually really like interesting um and then we get pride so the very next day they go and they find a model named rachel um and her face has been disfigured and we find out that she basically like took like pills she killed herself because she couldn't live with the fact that her face was disfigured and this is pride and so now we're getting to like, you know, this is now the, the fifth of the seven deadly sins. John Doe's laziest sin. Yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, and I believe and this, this is also the scene, though, where there's another female detective and she tells him, they're, like, we can't find any prints, like, whatsoever. And so both Mills and... No, like, that's, that's, that's at John Doe's house. At oh, John okay. Doe's apartment. Yes, uh, they can't find you know, any fingerprints. Said, yes. We can't find any fingerprints. And Brad Pitt's like, you're right. I don't believe you. Keep looking. <laughs> yeah, like, he's so frustrated here, but... Well, like, we also see that, like, all these crime scenes, like, the only fingerprints you ever find are, like, of a different victim. Like, they're never, like, you know, like, the, the print that you're looking for. Um, and so Somerset then tells Mills, like, because he's getting to the end of his, like, his week, and he's like, well, I actually asked the captain to stay on until this case is finished. So mm -hmm. we see here that he's now starting, he's willing to, like, stay on. He's not so eager to get away now, and he wants to see this through. And so he basically says, because if we don't, like, finish this now this case will drag on for years and so he's like we I, he's like this he's like i need to see this through before i retire and so um we then see they're at the police station and john doe just randomly walks in and then this is where you get to see that this is kevin spacey his blood what an entrance, he has, man. Yeah, the entrance you're like what and he's blood all over him and he's like and then he like, yells at brad pitt because brad pitt doesn't respond at first when he's yeah. like, hey, and then he's like, hey, you know, and so he finally turns around and this is where like he freaks out because he realizes this is the guy. So from a from a from a purely like storytelling perspective, this is one of the most genius like moments in cinema history because it is not the way these sorts of movies go. The movie has set itself up as a reflection on good and evil told through somebody chasing um, chasing a killer. It's the setup it's a typical setup of like, here are the clues, here are the detectives being brilliant, here are, you know, we don't know who the killer is, but we're racing against the clock to stop the killer. You know, we've got a time limit and that Somerset's going to be go going away in a few days and he's giving this up. These two aren't really connecting, you know, clashes of styles, every trope of hard-boiled detective stories. Um and we even get the beats. Like we have, we we have the close call. We have we're getting somewhere with the information. We're finding yeah. clues. Like we're tracking this killer down. And then you even get you get Somerset saying, "I've asked to stay on until this is over." So Somerset has decided he's not retiring right away. He wants to see this case through. You are we are ramping up to a third act in which they crack the case and chase down the killer and instead he walks into the police station and gives himself up it is so unsatisfying as far as detective stories go it is so brilliant as far as this movie goes the way yeah. he just quietly covered in blood walks in and mm -hmm. says detective i also have detective. so many questions about his day yeah. before he walked into that police station <laughs> uh so, well, one of the interesting, so right after this happens, um, he could basically obviously gets taken in, uh, processed, and he's in an interrogation room. And so this clearly sometime has passed because they get back the fact that he has cut off all of his fingerprints. So that's why they have never been able to find fingerprints. And he has no credit history, like employment history. And so this is now where Somerset tells Mills, okay, obviously his real name's not John Doe. He created John Doe to pull this off. So whatever he was doing, like he was a real person before this, but we don't have his information because he cut off all his fingerprints and he basically has like assumed this brand new identity that um, we can't find any information. And uh, he basically, he and Mill both agree that he's basically just toying with them and that he's not done because there are two more of the seven deadly sins that are going to happen. 
And so he also, um, John Doe basically says, like, yeah, can I speak to my lawyer, please? Like, very calmly, nonchalantly. And so his lawyer comes and he finally meets with uh, Mills and Somerset and says, okay, like, my client. Basically- Richard Schiff out yeah, here. Schiff, yep. But he basically says, like, my client will only uh, meet with, like, he will, there are two more bodies. He will take it to them at six o'clock this evening, but he will only talk to, obviously, the Mills and Somerset. And so they have this, like, scene back and forth where they have to decide, are we actually going to do this? Are we going to, like, say yes to this? Because they basically tell the lawyer, like, he's basically, like, using blackmail, which is admissible. So, like, at trial, like, he's obviously going to, like, um, go to prison. And so he basically says, but yeah, like consider the fact though, that you don't go with him and there are two bodies. And then the public finds out that you just, you don't care about these two murder victims. And so they, there is a bit of dilemma there, whether or not they actually go with John Doe out to the, the place where he supposedly has these two other bodies for uh, wrath and envy, the last two uh, sins there. And so um, they finally eventually agree that they'll go. And so they make the trip out there and then you have a scene with, you know, Morgan Freeman, Kevin Spacey, Brad Pitt, and they're driving in the car and they start like asking him questions. Like, you know, Morgan Freeman's character is like, you know, so like, who are you? Like, what are you doing? Like, what do you believe in? And he basically tells them that he has a mission. He calls it work, like work that he must do. And, uh, Doe tells Somerset that he was chosen for this work. And so this is where Somerset says, like, why would a higher power, like, ask you to, like, murder? You know, like, he was basically saying, like, you're, like, you're not really a martyr, like, if you're doing this. And um, this is where Doe basically says, like, he's tired of what's happening in the city. He's tired of everybody killing each other for no reason. He's tired of the senseless violence. And so he decides that he's going to make each of those people who have committed crimes pay by um, atoning through like one of the seven deadly sins like they have to pay attrition for you know committing one of them and so um and he also says that like he's going to be puzzled over studied and followed for years to come so like well and a shout out to another one of my favorite quotes from this movie um he says wanting people to listen you can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore you have to hit the sledgehammer and then you'll find you have their attention Mm -hmm. um which which kind of in those journals, like, what is it, like, how many things did he try and do before he decided, okay, I have to go out and do these elaborate murders? Right. That's a great question. Did he jump straight to elaborate murders? I don't think so. Because or did I, he try, like, I'm going to have a bake sale? I'm going to, like... I think <laughs> that he quieter, even whenever he talks, even whenever he walks into that, um, when he walks into the, the the police station, he starts quiet, and then he shouts. Because they and don't listen to him, yeah. Yeah, and then people listen to him. And he even says... Isn't it in one of his binders that, like, a guy tried to talk to him on the on the uh, uh, train and he was so disgusted by the guy that he just threw up on him? Yes. That's yeah, one and of his said, and then, yeah, and then he's like, I couldn't stop laughing because I thought it was hilarious. Like, that's what yeah. he wrote in the one of the books that Morgan Freeman was reading. So, yeah, John, yeah, I'm calling... Yeah. I'm calling bullshit, John. I don't think you tried very hard. <laughs> uh, but okay, so my stomach literally like dropped the next when he so then Mills turns his attention to or uh, um, Joe turns his attention to Mills and he tells mm-hmm. him, I'm only here, or he says, um, You should be thanking me because people will, will, will remember you and remember I'm only here because I wanted to be. Which I was like, Oh, that's foreshadowing for the end. 
because mm-hmm. like it, he's toying with him and taunting him, but like obviously they he has no idea what's going on. So Mills doesn't understand that he is part of the 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 grander plan. Like he is going to be used to carry out the mission that the you know that this this guy has. And so we go into the last we get into the last of deadly sins here where. Uh, Jundo is leading them out of the city, and apparently on one side of the city is this massive, like, desert, like, barren wasteland. So they go out here, and he takes them to a field of, like, electrical uh, towers. And um, he leads them off the road, and they are followed by a um, police, uh, like, a SWAT helicopter. And so the leader of the SWAT helicopter is named California, and he's played by John C. McGinley, who plays Dr. Cox on the TV show Scrubs. And he's like, he's falling behind. They have radios. like So he's trying to communicate with them to make sure, like, to find out what's going on. And so, like, he's just up there, like, circling and waiting for them to say, like, if he needs to move in or whatever he needs to do. And so they get to this place. Um, Doe tells them, turn off on this, like, little access road. So they do that. And then they decide they're going to get out of the car. And so as soon as they do, um, you see a van approaching from, like, w- the road. And so it comes up and it's so at this point, Somerset tells Mills and uh, Doe, like, stay here with him. I'm going to go meet this guy to see what's going on. So he gets in the, the black uh, car. He goes out and he meets him and there's a box. And the guy's like, I was told to deliver this exactly like at seven o'clock. So here's the box. And so he has this box and he's trying to determine whether or not he's going to open it. And so he's kind of looking at it. And so he's like, I don't, I'm not sure. And one of the things you hear, though, as he's leaving, as a Somerset is leaving to go intercept this, you hear Mills or don't tell Mills, well, th- this will give us a chance to talk. It's a good thing that he's leaving. Uh, so so like, many problems with this section of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, OK. So, so many issues. This so is horrible police procedure. <laughs> so, yeah. So at this point, then um, Somerset has a box. And so he does open it. And so he slits it open with his little switchblade and there's blood on the one of the flaps. And he opens it up and he immediately freaks out. And he tells California, like, no matter what you hear or what you see, do not intervene. Like, do not, like, do anything. Stay back. And so you're like, okay, what's happening? He takes off running. And he's telling him, like, you can hear him screaming across, like, this field. Like, do not listen to him. He's going to lie to you. Do not listen to him. And so he's running across the field, and then this is where Mills um, and John Doe are. And uh, he also tells Mills, like, put your gun down, like, throw your gun away. And so John Doe, at this point, tells Mills that he admires him. And, like, so he's starting to ramble, and he's like, I admire your life. And he's talking very quietly here. He's talking very quietly. So, like, at this point, you're just like, is he talking to himself? Is he talking to another person? And you hear him say, like, I admire, like, your life and your pretty wife. And then uh, he says, I visited your house this morning. And this is where Mills starts to pay attention to him. And he basically says, I tried to play house with your wife. She wasn't interested. So I took her head. And mm-hmm. so and so this is where, obviously, um, Somerset's coming and running up to him. And this is where you get the iconic line, what's in the box? You know? <laughs> what's in the box? The line that yeah, has... Absolutely. Also, this is a bit late to be saying this, but if you've never seen this movie, do not listen to... You, the, the, People should not be listening to this podcast episode if they have never seen this movie. <laughs> Her head's in the box, you guys. Definitely see the movie Her ahead of time. We, like, we, we, we always tell people, like, you need to watch the movie before you listen to an episode. Okay. <laughs> then, then listen to the episodes. <laughs> um, Make it very clear. 
yeah. So this is where, and then he tells, this is where he tells uh, Mill straight up, well, he's like, envy, envy was my sin. So he's mm-hmm. saying that one of the sins is his. And so that's yeah. the sixth sin down. And like, okay, well, now it's just wrath. And at this point, you realize he's, he's going to use Mills to kill him, and he will be then the wrath. Mm-hmm. And this will end the film here. And so Somerset is like telling him, uh, Mills, like, put your gun down. Don't shoot him. Like, think of, like, just think of all the good you can still do. Like, you're not going to be able to do that if you're in prison. And he's like just begging him. And at this point, like, Mill or Joe is still antagonizing him, taunting him. And so Mills just up and shoots him. And you hear California say, like, oh my God, he just shot the guy. And I was struck by um the close-up that they do on yeah. brad Pitt with him in like the tears as he's struggling yeah to um to to fight the wrath that he is feeling he because yep. he, he's trying to fight it he's trying to listen to somerset um it, and the, he has the tears in his eyes and he's dealing with these emotions and um it was funny because it was the most '90s Brad Pitt that Brad Pitt looked in this whole movie. Yeah, I also am always struck by the uh, iconic. And by iconic, I mean ridiculous. Again, the police work is terrible here, but the ridiculous <laughs> line uh, after he shoots him from the SWAT team of "Somebody call somebody." Somebody call somebody. Yeah, exactly. Somebody. Like, call somebody. Like, You're the SWAT. Like, what are you talking somebody about? Somebody call somebody. Everybody's um, fired. Yeah, so, but at this point, you realize, like, this guy had this plan, and it was to get the police to shoot him at the end, and they become the wrath. And so... Um, Just Mills. Yeah, <laughs> Mills. So, like, and it would end up being Mills. And so, in the end, like, John Doe actually, and he even, so Somerset even tells, like, Mills, don't do this, because you you will be, like, ending his work for him. You will be helping him complete his mission. Don't do it. And he, he just couldn't, he couldn't help himself. He, he was in so much pain and he was so far gone that he just shot him. And then he shoots him once and then it kind of pans around and then he shoots him like four more times. And so <laughs> like, he's basically unloading his gut in this guy. And so um, it immediately switches to the aftermath where Mills is, you know, put into the police car and he like looks catatonic. Like he has gone into, into shock and the captain and uh, Somerset talk, and the captain says, we will get him the help he needs. And Somerset says, literally, whatever it takes, get him help. And so they mm-hmm. take him away, and then Somerset, and the captain's like, well, what are you going to do? And Somerset's like, I'm, I'm going to stay. And he's like, I'm going to be around. And then he does, he quotes Hemingway, and he's like, Hemingway said, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. And he's like, and I, I agree with the second part. And so you see here that, like, he has come full circle. Like, he is back to wanting to to help again, to wanting to be, you know, like basically what Mills like has said, he's going to take that mission on and he's going to become that person again. And so I think over the course of the film, like it's kind of reinvigorated him in him that like he, he can actually help in this world that is so like far gone and so bad. And then we get the rant, the, we go to black and then we get the credit of yes. Kevin Spacey. And as John like, very first, the very first thing is, and Kevin Spacey as, and so you're like, oh, okay, like that's where the credits end up coming. But the, that's they actually, that... they said because he didn't get one in the beginning, they gave him two. So he gets a special mm-hmm. one at the end and then he gets one in the rolling uh, list as well. So <laughs> that's actually kind of a, but that's actually kind of already a thing. Like everyone gets two. 
Yeah. You're legally contractually yeah. required. Everyone to gets to. two credits yeah. anyway. Like, yeah, he didn't get one in the beginning. Um, so they had every, at the end. <laughs> like every if you ever if you ever watch credit, like that's a it's a industry standard thing that we all get two credits. The and movie. they used to be always at the beginning and the end, but then we started putting most of the credits at the end, at which the is end. Yep. the Avengers. You get the pretty animated ones, and then again, you get the roll screen ones. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, did you want to talk about your issues with John Doe here? Oh man. Okay. So listen, guys, uh, John Doe's plan doesn't make any sense. Um, because, okay. So, oh, okay. I don't even know where to start. So John Doe started the ball rolling on this plan a year ago. Yes. Okay. So a lot of magic has to happen for this plan to work, right? The the planning planning the thing a year in advance is fine. The even some of the setups of like that he does, but like okay, writing gluttony on the back wall is, um is is a super heavy gamble because yes, Somerset finds it because he would have found that. He because he's a genius detective, but who would have found that? Yeah, no gluttony. one would have found that. They didn't find it when they tossed the plays. Only because Somerset goes back because of the coroner giving him the the stuff he found, and Somerset makes that deduction of the floor to then maybe move that thing. It's the only reason he finds it. Yeah, and it's like it, it gluttony being written behind the fridge always feels a bit strange to me because he is trying to get this message across. So why hide it in the first round? So then, so then the, the thing with the hands behind the painting, again, it's, it requires, it requires not just brilliant detectives, which you don't know that you're going to get, but also it requires them to find the victims and clues in the right order for this stuff to work out. And so it's it it, it relies on the magic of storytelling yeah. because in real life you would ne this would not have this would not have picked up. And when all of that is happening, there's no way John Doe knows that he's envy. Mhm. Mm Cuz he's envious of he's envious of the life that Mills has specifically. And my question there is, when did you learn anything about Mills? He literally just moved here. He knows no one in town. His wife doesn't go out, he doesn't go out. When when in carrying out two murders, like you you still had to murder uh Pride. Yeah. Yeah. During all of this. So when did you learn anything about Mills that you were going to make yourself envy and Mills wrath? I think that he decided he was going to make Mills wrath in um, whenever he met them on the stairs. I think maybe now, I think him being envy. So I think that there are backup victims out there somewhere. Well, yeah, one, there I, I agree. I think that he probably did have somebody, but he switched it to Mills. Because he had interaction with Mills, and like Mills has almost got the upper hand until like he basically knocked him out. So I, I, then, I can kind of see that like Mills could have been like where he switched it to Mills because it was like an opportunity crime at this point where he's like, okay, like I can go with Mills. But I can't, I can't go with that because it, again, it's too methodical and switching on a dime four or five days into your like five days and then like oh i'm gonna execute this in three days after you plan for a year no way i don't buy it i just don't buy it, well, that, I also, it that way i and I, then I, and then the, the the and the main reason that all this is an issue is because oh my goodness he he had to he had to kill the pride lady 
leave her murder, <laughs> go to Mills's house, try to play house, kill Gwyneth Paltrow, put her head in the box, give it to the, the delivery guy, <laughs> and then go to the police station all in bloody clothes. Yep. No one saw yep. him. No one stopped him. Exactly. No one said anything. The cab driver gave him a ride. Like the, it doesn't work. Like the entire final <laughs> day doesn't work at all because he killed a planned. He killed a victim then, and like I don't even think he had found pride yet when they started because he's still taking pictures of people all week. I don't know. Like I, it. Like I love the movie. I love John Bell's character, and it is one of the craziest like sequence of, and it's a brilliant ending. But it does not work in real life, and it makes no sense. His that the day he turns himself in, he has murdered two people that morning, <laughs> and he's murdered two people since Brad Pitt left for work. Yeah, yeah, impossible. <laughs> impossible. Um, I, I mean, personally, I can I'm willing to overlook it because I do think that it's such an interesting movie, and oh, yeah. like, the payoff is so good because you don't see like spacing until the end that I'm willing to overlook all of that. <laughs> and I will suspend the disbelief to love the movie, but it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> like okay, every time so I, will, I give this a five, but also <laughs> like I'm giving you your five, like you earned your five, but also you know for a fact I'm grading on a curve. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um there's a little bit more trivia that I wanted to talk about uh before we talk about some quotes and then we do give our rating. Um so I found out a little bit of just background information. So the filmmakers decided it should always be raining for two reasons. One, it added a sense of dread, and they never had to worry about bad weather. So that's why they did it. So that, like, if it's always raining, if it's raining outside, who cares? Because the movie's always raining. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. It also, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. That would work. So yeah, then also uh, here, um, during the scene where Mills and Somerset walk into the district attorney's office, a camera zooms onto a newspaper announcing the murder. A small article in the corner of the front page says, Housekeeper held hostage by a child's possessed durable three days of terror. And another says, Neighbor's beagle scares teen cures ate, ate your bout with hiccups. And so, like, like random, like, newspaper articles that would never be on the front page. I want to see, I want to see that movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, so David Fincher named the detectives in Fight Club Andrew, Kevin, and Walker after this film screenwriter. And needless to say, Walker did uncredited rewrites for Fight Club for him. So, oh. yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Val Kilmer turned down the role of John Doe. Mm-hmm. Good. Yep. Yes. Uh, sure? Denzel Washington turned down the part that went to Brad Pitt, telling Entertainment Weekly that the film was too dark and evil. Washington later regretted his decision upon seeing a screening of the film. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah like you do. Although, after, although yeah. if I'm Denzel Washington at this point, I don't take this movie either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so, so uh, Freeman would have been cool. They'd already worked together, and I, Denzel doesn't take. Denzel had already done. He's come. Yeah. He's still. Denzel's still rebuilding his goodwill after Malcolm X. He's not taking this movie. <laughs> okay, yeah. uh, I, Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone turned down the role of Mills. He told. <laughs> he told Ain't It Cool News that this was a mistake to do so. <laughs> Sylvester so Stallone. I, you I'm know, sorry, it's no. funny about Sylvester Stallone cannot pull off like Brad Pitt's role. I mean, yeah, no. Sylvester <laughs> so Stallone. What's funny about Sylvester Stallone turning down the part of Mills is that Sylvester Stallone has a turned down several big roles in yep. movies in this sort of vein. Yep. Um, because very famously, Sylvester Stallone was originally approached to star in Face Off, 
and said, "Oh yeah, no. yeah, we 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 already did that one, and we I I think um, like I trashed that film a lot, but we didn't talk about that." Yeah, he like it, very famous because you also think so. I mean, Sylvester Stallone, we kind of he's kind of a joke now, but Sylvester Stallone is an Academy Award winner and it was one of the biggest mm-hmm. stars of the eighties. So a lot of movies that like a lot of movies that you're like, "Wow, really? Why would you go to him for?" It's like, yeah, you would go to him yeah. because he's. He's an Academy Award winner who sits on top of some of the like most grossing franchises of all time. <laughs> um, so um, Al Pacino was also offered the role um, of Morgan Freeman's part, and he he turned it down because he was doing a different film at the time. And he again said like that he he should have done the movie. <laughs> yeah, he did City Heat. I think is what is the movie he was yeah, doing around this yep, time. Uh, City Hall. City Hall. City Hall. Yeah, he's doing City Hall around this time. Yeah, which, I mean, is lost to the scrap of history. <laughs> um, also, Gene he'll make Hackman, up for it. He'll make up for it in two years though, when he does Devil's Advocate. Yes. <laughs> Gene Hackman was offered the role of Somerset, but he turned it down because there were too many night shoots. <laughs> so, okay, you know what? No, sorry. Valid. Night shoots are a bitch. Let me tell you. Yeah. Like, you, you, you get in there and, like, man... I, uh, we did we did a month of them on Halloween and it it messes with you. It really because your your entire day night schedule is completely altered, um, yeah. and it takes a while to get used to and it takes a while to come down from. So I listen. I get it. I get it, Gene. I wouldn't like if you if you can elect not to elect not to. <laughs> um, Robert Duvall was offered the part after Gene ha- Hackman turned it down. He also said no. So. That's a loss. Robert Duvall yeah. would have been great. I think so, too. Okay, so this was really interesting. So Seven ended up setting an odd record when it was recognized by a popular electronic trivia system used in the U.S. as part of a question that was easily the most wrongly answered in the system's history. The mm-hmm. question was... I better know what the question is. What city does Seven take place in? And most Absolutely. said New York City, with the remainder being divided between other northeastern cities like Boston and Philadelphia. And only a few said that the film that the the place is unspecified in the film yeah, yeah they never do not mentioned. tell you where they never mentioned and they said so one of the other trivia things is that when they do a close-up of the badge it just says metropolitan that's it <laughs> so there you go so you're going with um, the idea Julian, that it's it's that that batman is in fact running around the city yeah cool yeah yeah yeah, I'm yeah sure, exactly sure. okay so this is really interesting as well at seven minutes before the end of the film, smack in the middle of the most dramatic scene of the entire movie, a subliminal picture is shown for a fraction of a second, short enough to be unable to recognize it when the film is playing. Freeze uh-huh. frame the movie at one hour, 52 minutes and 53 seconds. At that particular moment, blink once with your eyes and you've missed it. But if you freeze frame around that time, you will see Gwyneth Paltrow's face appear for the f- a flash of a second. Is this, like, is this while they're talking? This is no. I think this is actually right where um, they. He's asking what's in the box. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I have. I have. I have clocked that. Then. Okay. I was just yes. trying to see yep. if I had clocked. Yep. Sorry. That. Did you see the image? Yeah, I think so. Like, I, I think I like. I think I've subliminally seen the flash. Oh, oh all right. I think then. the subliminal worked. That's what I'm saying. It worked on you. I think yes. so. It, yeah. It was no longer <laughs> subliminal. It was liminal for you. It was liminal. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about are all the multiple endings for this film because there's like seven. <laughs> so, um, so the directors and actors wanted the film to end with a cut to black right after Mills shoots John Doe. Like, so, like, almost like the Sopranos, you immediately cut, cut to black and then silence and then the credits roll. Uh, but New Line requested that a coda 
be shot following John Doe's death after poor test screenings, but people hated that ending. So they ended up doing the Ernest Hemingway quote where uh, Mills is taken away. But to this day, David Fincher hates that he had to give in to that because he didn't like that ending. Um, I can, I, fair. Uh, I mean, it's 1995. People yeah. just got Toy Story. They don't want, exactly. they don't want you to just, they don't want cuts to black. And then cut to black. Okay, yeah. so here's some other ones. So one of the rewritten endings of the film involved John Doe kidnapping Mills. Somerset discovers that John Doe was raised by an abusive priest in a church orphanage. He finally traces Doe to a decrepit church decorated with artwork depicting the seven deadly sins, where Doe was intent on making Somerset murder him out of vengeance. As Somerset arrives, Doe has cut a cross in Mill's chest, has suspended him above the altar, and shoots him. Mills finally dies in Somerset's arms as the church is set on fire. Doe and Somerset subsequently engage in a shootout, with Somerset wounding Doe and letting him die in the flames. The script ends with Mills' funeral. Shit. Yeah. Way more dark, too. Are you so? Uh, are you gonna are you gonna talk about the proposed sequel to this movie? Yeah. Okay. So an alternate <laughs> there was a proposed yeah. sequel to this movie, and it is bananas. An alternate ending revealed that John Doe did not murder Mills' wife, only substituting a lookalike. Mills then has no justification for killing an unarmed man and will spend the rest of his life in jail. Somerset decides not to retire and instead gives his country house to Mills' wife and her unborn baby. I do not like that ending. No, terrible ending. Yeah, yeah, that's terrible. Uh, so, to appease the producers who wanted to soften the dramatic ending a bit, an alternate version of the ending was storyboarded. In this ending, before Mills has a chance to kill John Doe, Somerset says that he wants out. He turns his gun on Doe and fatally shoots him. A shocked Mills asks, "What are you doing?" To which Somerset replies, "I'm retiring." By killing John Doe, Somerset prevents Doe from winning and Mills from ending up in jail. <laughs> Again, I don't think it works. <laughs> no, I mean, they, just just so many different endings there, y'all. So many different endings. Um, so then this one says that there is a version of the seventh script that ends with Somerset recovering from gunshot wounds in the hospital, where he receives a note from Mills stating, you were right, you were right about everything. In a copy of the script posted on Digital Spy, during the final altercation between the three men, Somerset is holding a switchblade, Poised to take Doe out before Mills can shoot him. Mill fires in Somerset to stop the older detective from taking away his chance for revenge. So he ends up shooting his partner and putting him in, like, the hospital. And then also killing Doe. I mean, eesh. Yeah. Um, And then the studio originally felt that the the head-in-the-box ending would alienate audiences. And instead proposed a more traditional climax in which Doe kidnaps Tracy. Somerset and Mills manage to save her life after a last-minute race against time. Luckily for future audiences, both Fincher and Pitt stuck to their guns and insisting that they would never film that. Yeah, I do know that. I do know that Pitt really, really put in a lot of. Uh, he pulled a lot of whatever weight he had to try and um, make this movie, uh, or try and keep this movie what what it was. Um, which, again, as we talked about, he's trying to come off of that early '90s heartthrob sort of and step into some media roles so it makes sense you like don't soften the ending of my movie man yeah because i think too like yeah he exactly like he he's now wanting to be like recognized as this um dramatic actor that can you know lead a movie or you know um at least not be like the cheesy heartthrob that takes a shirt off you know in every and everything uh, <laughs> yeah 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 Ugh. Yeah, so did you want to talk about the sequel? Um, 
sorry, Michael had to step upstairs to put our child a, child back okay. to bed real quick. Um, so, uh, so I don't know much about the sequel. So let me, uh, but I know that he obviously does. Um, but hold on one second and I'll go grab him to come talk about this. No, I, I have it right here. So, okay. Okay, cool. So, sorry. Okay, so, yeah, sorry. Um, the studio wanted a sequel to Seven. Despite the closed nature of the film, Pitt's character is probably headed for either prison or a mental institution. New Line wanted to build on what they thought would become a franchise. The studio took a spec script titled Solace about a psychic investigating a serial killer and had it retrofitted for Freeman's Detective Somerset. The project never moved forward with Freeman, and Solace was eventually released with former Hannibal Lecter Anthony Hopkins in 2015. Not so. everybody needs to be, not everything needs to be a franchise, y'all. It, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. Yeah, so I think like that, yeah, that came out in 2015. It was originally planned and developed as a sequel to Seven, but it was scrapped and then it just became a standalone film. So. Um, I've never seen that film, so I can't really like say if it's good or bad or whatever. But um, I would say that um, I think it's good that Seven stands alone by itself. Yeah. Okay, so the very last thing that we always like to do on the podcast is we like to talk about what where we, we think Abed Nadir would rate this film based on our rating standards. So one being um, the opposite of Batman, two being slightly above Brett Ratner because he's not a big fan. Three mm -hmm. being, being Holly Hunter, four being Kick Puncher Detroit, and five being Buttered Noodles, because obviously that's his favorite thing in the world. So where do you think Abed would rank this film? I actually think Abed, I think Abed would put it at a four. Okay, yeah, I would actually probably 100% agree with that. I do think that uh, this would be uh, a number four as well. Yeah, I think I think that while it is great, I think that there are enough little holes here and there that Abed's very analytical mind would be like, it can't be perfect, but it can be right. almost perfect. Yeah, and I think like he would definitely agree with that because I think he would also say like, okay, like this is a very well directed film. Like there are aspects of this that are like genius, but then there are enough plot holes where you're like, I can't give it a full five. <laughs> Michael um, is back now. <laughs> so where would so like so? I would agree with that. Probably a four. But where would you personally rank this? I would personally give it a five. It has all of its different. It has its different. Um, it has its different weaknesses. But I don't know. It's just so brilliant that all of its weaknesses. I'm like, it's fine. Yeah. I've watched this movie. I probably watched this movie dozens of times. Um, I've analyzed it uh, deeply, and I've watched it just for pleasure. And I, I gotta say, it, it is just you know, it, obviously, it, it is. It is not a perfect movie. I don't think. I don't think I would consider it one of um, the perfect movies. I don't think I would consider it one of Fincher's perfect movies. But I would. I would a hundred percent give it a solid four, even pushing towards a five, because I think it is. Um, I think it is just genuinely, as far as movies go, one of the most satisfying, mm -hmm. horrifying movies of all right. time. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's very dark. It is. It, you know, it, it's very dark, but it, it has a lot to say. Um, it has a lot to say. It is incredibly well done. It is dripping with style. Uh, it's got some great performances in it. It's got yep some absolutely just beautiful imagery in it it's got some great lines in it um yeah i mean i think it's a great movie 
Uh, I don't think it's the greatest movie. I think I actually think that Fincher does all of this better later in in other movies. movies. I actually think, um, you know, as far as like the dripping with grit, I think Girl with the Dragon Tattoo does that somewhat better um, with the trademark uh, Fincher sheen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when it comes to like the detective story and solving a crime, I actually think Zodiac is perfect uh, for that. Um, so this is also a great landmark movie for me because it's also like, oh, look at all the pieces of Fincher that will be yeah. perfected in later movies. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely give this um, a five as well. I would say like of all of them though, like I would say this is probably my favorite Fincher movie outside of maybe Fight Club. Um, I just really like. It doesn't. It's not necessarily like the happiest ending, but it's an amazing yeah. ending. Like it's a great yes. ending, and like I like you can't argue that. I think it, like it the, like you do get a payoff even if it's not like a successful or like nice happy ending. So I would definitely agree with that. I think it's a great film, but I just wanted to say again, like thank you so much for coming on and talking about this um, iconic, amazing movie with me. Um, where can people find your podcast? Um, you can find us where Welcome to Greendale. You can find us on uh, iTunes. Everywhere. Anywhere iTunes. that you find podcasts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. everywhere you find Wherever podcasts. Wherever you get your podcast, you can pick up Welcome to Greendale. Um, and we have new episodes that release every Friday. Every awesome. Friday. Okay. So, yeah, definitely check them out. Um, I know, especially like if you decide you want to do like a rewatch, I would recommend like doing it like they did, where you watch one a week and maybe listen to their like podcast after you do it. I think that would be awesome. And um, a lot of fun. Um, so again, thank you so much for coming on. Um, we'd also like to thank our um, listeners and our subscribers and just uh, ask you guys to leave us a rating or review if you um, enjoy what you hear. Uh, thanks again so much. I look forward to seeing you guys uh, in our next episode. Bye.